welcome to In His Grip with Dr. Chuck Betters, Senior Pastor at Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. In His Grip is a daily broadcast presented by Mark Inc. Ministries. Today's sermon is taken from a series of messages by Dr. Betters entitled, The Grapes of Wrath, which describes the ministry of Isaiah in Israel and Judah over the course of 60 years. In today's sermon, The Grapes of Wrath, Part 3, Dr. Betters again notes the parallels between the church today and the church of Isaiah's day. He recaps the first three sins of the church progressing from prosperity to bondage. He finishes his exposition of rationalism and introduces us to the fourth woe, relativism, in which people call good evil and call evil good. Let's join Dr. Betters as he enters his last message in this series. Isaiah prophesied for almost 60 years under a series of kings, both Isaiah and Jotham, Hezekiah, who were relatively good kings, and also under Ahaz and under Manasseh, who certainly were evil kings. And during his time of preaching ministry, he saw the pilgrimage of the people of God from a period of pleasure and prosperity to a period of bondage and persecution. The question becomes, what happened? How did the people of God go from a time of prosperity, seeking after the Lord, to a time of bondage when they barely knew Him? What are the characteristics of such a church? And do we see parallels between what is happening today in Christendom and what happened in the time of Isaiah, I say we do see significant parallels. Now, if we have been talking about those parallels, the grapes of wrath, where in the fifth chapter of Isaiah, he pronounces judgment upon the church for specific sins. Now, to quickly review, the first of those sins was practical atheism, concerned more about themselves than they were about who they were as the people of God. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Secondly, the sin of hedonism or materialism. More concerned with the pursuit of pleasure, with the, cons- with the pursuit of what makes me feel good, what makes me uh, feel satisfied than what it means to serve Uh, the God whom they claim to know. The third sin was the sin of rationalism. We find that in verses 18 and 19 of Isaiah chapter 5. We began to talk about this the last time we were together. Rationalism, a picture of a beast harnessed uh, to and dragging a cart with cords of deceit and cords of falsehood. Uh, Look at those verses. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so that we may see it. Let it approach. Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. Here is the picture of a people holding to false doctrine, holding to a system of belief that says, unless I can see it, unless I can prove it, unless it can be shown to me, unless I can empirically sustain my belief, I will not believe. So God, prove yourself to me. The doctrinal system of these people was so wrapped up in sin 
that uh, the, the prophet calls it sin and wickedness, sin and iniquity. Not only what they did outwardly, but how they thought. Their whole thinking process was shrouded by this, this belief that God is a God who has to prove himself to me, otherwise I will not believe. A skepticism which doubts that God is at work at all which doubts that God is at work in the world, which doubts that God, who is so transcendent, could be concerned about the minute affairs of men, certainly not about individual men. A refusal to see the hand of God at work and thus to deny the supernatural. You see, at the heart of what these people believed was their denial of the supernatural. They said that God cannot be believed. Miracles do not exist. Well, this is nothing new. In the day of Jesus, they were called the Sadducees, the rationalists of their day. In the days of the early church, it was Gnosticism, which denied the supernatural. And in our day, it's the Bultmanians, the ones who demythologize the scriptures, the ones who deny inerrancy. It's nothing new. It's been going on all the way back to the day of Isaiah and before. People simply say, unless God can be proven, unless I can sustain him in a test too, I will not believe. The Sadducees of Jesus' day. You know, a good way to remember something about the Sadducees, they were sad, you see. <laughs> and the reason they were sad, you see, is because they simply didn't believe that God could work anything miraculous. There was no heaven or afterlife. There is no resurrection. There were no miracles. All of its myth, all of its fairy tale. You say, that's terrible. Well, you know, just a parenthetical thing. There are so many exciting things that are happening in churches like ours all around the area. Do you think the news journal would ever report on something exciting like that? What gets the coverage? A woman who says the Bible cannot be believed. A bunch of fairy tales. Well, they ought to come down here on Sunday morning and see a thousand people sitting here worshiping the Lord and rejoicing that that God is alive. And you know, there are other churches where this, where this is happening. Do you think that they would give any credence to people who believe that God is a supernatural God? You know what's interesting in this article? She is a uh, University of Essen professor, and uh, she has written a book which is a revisionist view of the history of the Bible. Uh, basically, and I'm not going to go through the whole article, basically the gist of what this woman says, by the way, she was raised under the theology of Rudolf Bultmann. I didn't even have to read the article. I knew as soon as I read who her, back, who her heroes of the faith were, what she believed. Bultmann believed that the Bible is a, Bible, is a book filled with or containing truth. Listen carefully. This book contains truth. How many of you agree with that? This book contains truth. Watch it. Careful. Careful. Don't raise your hand too quickly. You might get embarrassed in just a moment. There is a vast difference between saying that the Bible contains the Word of God and that the Bible is the Word of God. Now here's what Mr. Boltman did. He took the Bible and said, pull out of the Bible all of the myth. 
legend, folklore. For example, the resurrection of Jesus, fairy tale. The virgin birth, fairy tale. Jesus walking on water, fairy tale. Pull those things, the feeding of the 5,000, fairy tale. Get down to the significance of the truth, the kernel of truth that is contained in the book, and there is where you will find the Word of God. Well, that's what this theologian believes. By the way, you know one thing that I found as I read this article? And in this article, she denies all of those things. Says they're all legends, they're all fairy tales, what have you. What is really interesting to me, two things. One, the Catholic Church didn't tolerate it. And I want to commend the Catholic Church for not tolerating it. You know why I say that? Because in Protestantism, it is not only tolerated, it is promoted as truth, and you and I who believe that Boltmann was right out of the kingdom of hell are considered a minority. They threw her out. They said, you can't teach this stuff anymore. Thank God for that. But you know what's interesting? is She says here, she quotes Luke chapter 2, you know, the taxing of the people in the day of Cyrenius governor and all that other stuff. She says, that, that didn't happen. She said, Josephus proves that didn't happen. Now, Josephus was an early church historian. And what she does is she says, now, if you read Josephus very carefully, you will see that the account in the scripture is different than the account in Josephus, and Josephus becomes her authority. Now, two things. Number one, we believe that the Bible is the authority, and Josephus is only as valid as what he teaches and preaches can be validated by the Word of God. That's number one. But number two, and I found this really interesting... She says that she is a Christian. She is a Christian. I listened to what Jesus said before they killed him. I'm quoting now. There I find words like, love your enemies, do not retaliate. His words you might see, in his words you might see what he is like by seeing what he said. Therefore, she says, Following his words, I am a Christian. Well, lady, where did you get his words from? Where did you hear the lectures from? Where did you hear the words of Jesus enunciated? From the very book you say is a myth. How can you then embrace this Christ? So if, you, if you're going to take that part of it, then you better take the part where he says, He that has seen me has seen the Father, I and the Father are one. You can't be selective. She says, well, but Josephus, guess what I have here? Josephus. The works of Josephus. Well, why don't we find out what Mr. Josephus had to say about Jesus Christ? Here it is, Antiquities of the Jews, chapter 3, paragraph 3. I'm quoting. Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man. For he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as receive the truth with pleasure. 
he drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men among us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again on the third day. As the divine prophets, Bible, had foretold 10,000 other wonderful things concerning him, and the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct even unto this day. She failed to tell us that Josephus believed the Bible specifically concerning the promises of Messiah and that she claims, or that he claims, that Jesus was the Messiah risen from the dead. What do I think of this? I think this woman's an idiot. That's what I think. <laughs> and I think she's intellectually an idiot in the sense that she simply does not do justice to good scholarship. You're going to argue, at least argue fairly. Why am I spending so much time on her? Because she is representative of the pulpits of America, the seminaries of America. This is the message that's being preached. Rationalism. Nothing new. Woe to those, Isaiah says, who draw sin along with cords of deceit, who say to God, prove yourself. No miraculous. No transcendent God affair, uh, involved in the affairs of men. Well, what is the natural birth child of rationalism? Go on in the passage. Let's look at the fourth woe, the fourth grape of wrath. Chapter 5 and verse 20. Woe to those. You see, if you demythologize the scriptures, if you take the myth out of what God says, quote unquote, if you decide rationalistically what is true in the Bible, then the, the natural birth child, the natural child of that process is going to be found in verse 20. Woe to those who call good evil. Woe to those who call evil good who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. You see, this heresy has taken on a new form. Gnosticism, Sadduceeism, rationalism. It, it has different labels today. Different ideas. And the fourth grape of wrath here is relativism. Practical atheism will always lead to hedonism or the pursuit of pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure will always lead to rationalism, a denial of the supernatural. And the denial of the supernatural or rationalism will always lead to relativism. I will decide for myself right and wrong. I will make contact with my inner self, and there is where the truth will be found. Now listen. This is not a sermon blasting secular psychology. But I want to tell you, a pseudo-intellectualism needs to be accommodated. You see, we are body and spirit or psyche or mind, 
and our psychological problems and our psychological upsets are distresses that are neither physical nor spiritual. You see, they're psychological. All we need to do, they tell us, is dig down deep inside of your psyche and tap that great human potential that's there. Get a hold of it. But there's no talk of the fall. There's no talk of sin. There's no talk of repentance. Instead, we hear, well, your behavior needs to be modified. Or you need drug therapy. Or a litany of all kinds of new terms to describe every aberrant behavior of society that due to the complex makeup of the human psyche is now considered to be normal. You name it. If there's enough people who say they have it, then all of a sudden it's normal. And we will fly some expert in from somewhere across the country to sit on national TV and tell us all why we are phobic about that person whose behavior is aberrant but now has become normal. John MacArthur talks about another form of relativism, calls it mysticism. This, I think, hits a little closer to home for some people. He defines mysticism this way. He says mysticism is the belief that spiritual reality is perceived apart from the human intellect and the natural senses. It looks for truths internally, weighing feelings, intuition, and other external sensations more heavily than objective, observable external data. Mysticism ultimately derives its authority from self-actualized, self-authenticated light rising from within me. Its source of truth is spontaneous rather than objective fact. In its most extreme form, Hinduism, and, it's, and in, in its most extreme form, it is Hinduism, and in its more modern context, it's New Ageism. You following what he's saying? Get in touch with what's inside. Well, I would say to those of you who are sold on this kind of thinking, go ahead and get in touch with what's inside. Because my Bible tells me that inside of the human spirit is nothing but depravity and wickedness that must be cleansed and forgiven. There is no divine light shining inside of you apart from Christ. There is no inner sense that you need to get in touch with in order to be self-actualized, in order to be fulfilled. That's mysticism. Private revelations, we call them, or, get this now, personal opinions. You see, when men are eventually allowed to frame their doctrines according to mystical thinking, then there follows a deadly delusion that error becomes truth. If my opinion frames the truth, then what happens when my opinion is contrary to the Bible's opinion? Then what's the truth? Well, what do we have today in the church? We have the modern health and prosperity gospel, a concoction of men's opinions. All you have to do is believe a certain way and God will heal you. All you have to do is lay it down and claim it. Name it and claim it. And God wants you rich and healthy and prosperous. The reason you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. The reason you're in debt is because you don't have enough faith. 
The reason you're not driving a Mercedes is because you don't have enough faith. No offense to Mercedes owners here. But the reason you're not prospering is because you have weak faith. You see, you need to dig down inside of your human soul and touch that seed of faith that's there. You ever hear that expression used? Plant a seed of faith. Well, we don't have any seeds of faith to plant. My Bible tells me that any faith I have comes from God. It's His faith. It belongs to Him, not to me. Left to myself, I would not believe. Name it and claim it. We have the modern-day signs and wonders movement, all the result of man opinionating the Scriptures, deciding for himself, relatively speaking, what is true and what is false. We have churches today that preach that you're only partial Christian unless you have spoken in some sort of a tongue, unless you have uh, received the, quote, baptism in the Holy Ghost. And usually there are two lines at these churches. One to receive healing, one to receive the baptism. Sadly, not in all cases, but in many of the cases, that is usually accompanied by some sort of plea from the pastor to now demonstrate that you truly have been filled with the Holy Ghost by whipping out your checkbook. This is heresy. And all designed out of the roots of men's opinions who take the scriptures and make them, believe, make them teach whatever they want them to teach. There's another movement. The modern day ecumenical push that ignores biblical truth. Yes, there is great division in the body of Christ, but most of that division is rooted in a disregard for good biblical exegesis. I am not willing to hold hands and walk down the street with someone who denies the inerrancy of Scripture. I'm not willing to say that just because he calls himself a Christian, he's my brother. I am not willing to stand up and say that the people who hate my God ought to be loved by me in some sort of ecumenical sense. We're told, whip down the barriers. Denominations are of the devil. Maybe there's some truth in that. But I want to tell you, it all fundamentally comes down to whether or not we are going to believe the divine opinions of Scripture or whether we are going to, whether we are going to believe the opinions concocted out of the hearts of depraved men. What the Bible means to me is far important than what the Bible means, period. That's how people think. When we lost our son, Mark, I felt violated and as though there was nothing in the world I could depend on until I remembered God's word never changes and neither does God. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So even though I was disappointed in his plans for our family, I knew the only safe place I could go for help and hope was his word. I'm Sharon Betters, and I hope you sense the passion and total confidence that we have in God's Word. We are so sure of the truth of His Word that we have dedicated our lives to producing and distributing resources designed to help turn hearts toward Him and to declare that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. 
I share some of God's life lessons on my blog, treasuresofencouragement.org. You can sign up to receive my post in your email. I'd love for you to become part of our Treasures of Encouragement online community. And now I hope you'll join us tomorrow as we finish up this convicting series, The Grapes of Wrath. Ron, please share with our listeners how they can learn more about our resources. Thank you for joining us for today's message from the Grapes of Wrath series. If you would like to receive a copy of this entire sermon, you can contact Mark Inc. Ministries and request The Grapes of Wrath Part 3 or simply reference sermon number 94-37. Mark Inc. Ministries can be reached toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Check out our website at www.markinc.org. If you would like to help In His Grip and our radio ministry stay on the air or help us to continue providing free resources to hurting people, your prayers and gifts are always welcome. You can call us toll-free at 877-MARK-INC. That's 877-627-5462. Or visit our website at markinc.org and click on the support button for more information. We would like to thank you for your continued listening and support. Mark Inc. Ministries is a nonprofit ministry that appreciates your ongoing prayers and support. For more information, or if you would like to email us, visit our website at markinc.org. We would also like to invite you to join us for our Sunday morning service at Glasgow Church. The church is located at 2880 Summit Bridge Road in Bear, Delaware, and our service begins at 10.30 a.m. each Sunday morning. If you are unable to attend the service in person, you can join our live stream from anywhere by going to our website at www.glasgowchurch.com. If you would like to contact us at the church, we can be reached at area code 302-834-4772 or through our website at glasgowchurch.com. Thank you again for listening to today's broadcast. Be sure to join us tomorrow for the conclusion of the series, The Grapes of Wrath. Have a blessed day and remember that God is sovereign and you can trust him as long as you are in his grip.